You are listening to Radical with David Platt, a weekly podcast with sermons and messages from pastor, author, and teacher David Platt. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 15. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. Today we come to one of the most sobering chapters in all of the Bible as we see Jesus, the Son of God, accused, beaten, mocked, spit upon, crucified, and ultimately killed. Charles Spurgeon described these moments we're seeing at the end of Jesus' life, saying, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation, more than for human language. Another writer said, surely this is a passage that we must approach on our knees. And D.A. Carson said, as Jesus' death was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. So I want to read slowly and solemnly the first 20 verses of Mark 15, leading right up to the point of Jesus' crucifixion today. And I want to show you how this horrifying scene is the fulfillment of specific promises God made 700 years before these events even happened. Josh McDowell was an atheist who set out to disprove Christianity, and he ended up becoming a Christian. His books, More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, have sold millions of copies around the world. One of the reasons he points to for why he came to the conclusion that he must believe in Jesus is fulfilled prophecy. Over 300 specific prophecies over centuries, fulfilled in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And today, I want to show you just a few of those 300 in Mark 15, in hopes that you might see and feel. For some of you who aren't Christians, maybe this is your first time in church, or maybe your first time in a long time, that you would realize that you are not here today by accident that God has had a plan over centuries to show you, right where you were sitting, how much he loves you. And today, he's brought you to this moment to hear, not just with your ears, but deep in your heart, how much God loves you. And for others of you who've been followers of Jesus, maybe for years or decades, I pray that today you will feel in a fresh way, with fresh awe, the wonder of God's historic plan to pursue you right where you're sitting, in love for you. And for all of us at the end, I also want to make specific application for anybody who's walking through hard days. 
So let's read this together, starting in Mark 15, verse 1. It'll be up here on the screen if you don't have a, a Bible in front of you. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. One of the primary themes in the book of Mark is his focus on Jesus as a suffering servant. Maybe the most famous verse in this Bible book is Mark 10, 45. We've looked at it many times where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes very clear, he came, came to serve us, and specifically to give his life as a ransom for many, for all who will repent of their sin and believe in him. And this specific picture of Jesus as a servant goes all the way back to prophecy, to promises about Jesus written seven centuries before Mark's day. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to hold your place here in Mark 15 and turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And I'll have these verses on the screen, but if you have a Bible, like I want you to see this in front of you with your own eyes looking down at your Bible, these words that were written by Isaiah 700 years before what we just read in Mark 15. As you're turning to Isaiah, let me set up this Bible book 
all throughout the book of Isaiah, you see a tension between the justice of God on one hand and the mercy of God on the other hand. Some verses in Isaiah are stunning depictions of God's severe judgment. And other verses are stunning depictions of God's astounding mercy. In such a way that you almost sit back and think, which one is it? Is God just or is God merciful? And this is a tension all throughout the Bible. I would say, in one sense, it's the ultimate question of the Bible. Here's the way I'd put it. How can God be just and merciful toward sinners? Think about it. If God is just in all that he does, and we are all guilty of sin against God, which we all are. Every one of us has turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves, our own ways. So if we are guilty of sin against the holy God of the universe, then God's justice warrants our judgment, our condemnation, period. End of story, no questions asked. In fact, because God is infinitely just, our sin warrants infinite judgment. So how can God be just and at the same time look upon sinful, guilty people and say, innocent? That's not just. When you think about it, it's a scandal in all of our eyes. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself conservative or progressive or liberal or anything else. If there is a judge who is knowingly declaring that guilty criminals are innocent, we would have that judge off the bench in a heartbeat. All of us have some sense of right and wrong, and we expect right to be praised and wrong to be condemned. And if God is just, we expect him to do the same. But God doesn't. God takes people who are totally guilty and says, you are totally innocent. God takes people who are completely rebellious. And he says, you are perfectly righteous. How's that just? And the answer to that question revolves around a servant whom God promised to send. And there are times in the book of Isaiah where the word servant refers to Isaiah himself or sometimes to the people of Israel. But the passage we're about to read clearly refers to an individual who's not Isaiah who God is promising will one day come. And once we get to the New Testament, the last part of the Bible, we realize who this servant is. It's Jesus. The passage we're about to read is quoted seven different times in the New Testament, all of them with reference to Jesus. And keep in mind, again, what we're about to read was written 700 years before Jesus even came, and before the whole process of Roman crucifixion was even conceived. So I just want to read these verses. I'll go ahead and tell you, there are a lot of words in here, and we're not going to have time to talk about them all. But I want to stop along the way. In the flow of the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, there are five groups of three verses. So I'm going to read them one group at a time. And if you're taking notes, I want to show you five promises about Jesus in Isaiah 52 and 53 that are fulfilled specifically in Mark 15. So start with me, 
Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. So here's this servant being described from the very beginning this way. High and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So here's the first promise about Jesus, written 700 years before he came. His appearance as a human servant will be indescribable. But his position as a divine king will be undeniable. His appearance as a servant, indescribable. His position as king, undeniable. So if you're writing that down, I'll come back to this in a minute. But this servant in Acts in Isaiah 52 and 53 is clearly human, but his appearance, indescribable, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, which is exactly what happens in Mark 15. As Pilate hands Jesus over to a battalion of soldiers to scourge him. Just to give you a little context behind scourging, as a prelude to Roman crucifixion in the first century, a prisoner would be stripped and bound to a post where he would be beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of metal and bone. This whip would lacerate and pull off the flesh of a man, often exposing his bones and organs. One of the purposes of scourging was to shorten the duration of crucifixion. It was so brutal that some prisoners died before even getting to the cross. Then Mark 15, 17 tells us these soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and dug it into Jesus' head. Then verse 19 says, they struck his head with a reed and spit in his face and stripped him. One medical doctor's description said the result of all this would be a man becoming an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue from head to toe. His appearance as a human servant will be indescribable, Isaiah says, but... His position as divine king will be undeniable. Isaiah 52.13 introduces this servant saying he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What's interesting is that's one of four times in the book of Isaiah we see this phrase. And every other time it's a reference to God himself. Isaiah 6, probably the most famous scene in the book of Isaiah he looks up and he says, I see the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And this is the picture. This servant whose appearance is horrifying is the holy king of creation. And isn't it interesting in Mark 15 how many times Jesus is referred to as the king? The first time in verse 2, Pilate asks, are you the king 
of the Jews. But even the language there in the English is a bit misleading because in the original language, it's actually a statement with a question implied. Pilate literally says, you are the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, you just said so. And the emphasis and the language on Jesus' words is on that you. As in you, the Roman ruler I'm standing before, you're the one who just called me king. Then in verses 9 and 12, twice Pilate refers to Jesus again as the king of the Jews. King of the Jews. And then when the soldiers are beating Jesus, albeit sarcastically, they call him king of the Jews. That's four times in Mark 15 where Jesus is referred to specifically as king. Now obviously no one knew, not Pilate, not the crowds, not the religious leaders, not the Roman soldiers. None of them knew the reality of what they were saying. But the point of this prophecy in Isaiah 52 and this picture in Mark 15 is crystal clear. His human appearance was indescribable, but his divine position was undeniable. This was a man and a king like no other. Amen. Which then leads into the next group of three verses in Isaiah. So now starting in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, talking about the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Second promise about Jesus to come. God will reveal him, but we will reject him. God will reveal him, but we will reject him. The picture here, and I'll come back to that in a minute. In verse 1 is the arm of the Lord, a picture of the power of the Lord being revealed up close and personal in this servant. And we, see how we gets emphasized here, the people he came to serve despised and rejected him, hid our faces from him. We did not esteem him. The language is literally, we didn't even consider him worthy of our attention. We consigned him to the side and condemned him as one we have no desire for. God will reveal him, but we will reject him. And is this not clearly portrayed in Mark 15? From the religious leaders to the crowds. They wanted Jesus gone, period. And this after his disciples, including right before this, what we looked at last week at the end of Mark 14, when Jesus' most prominent disciple, Peter, hid his face from any association with Jesus. And don't miss the pronoun here. This is not just about what they did, those disciples, those religious leaders, those Roman soldiers, those crowds. This is about what we did. What we would have done if we were in their shoes. Let us be careful not to esteem ourselves higher than we ought. John Stott said, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. This is the essence of our sinful nature. 
We have all rejected God. We, in and of ourselves, reject Jesus. The old Negro spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes. We were there, not as spectators, but as participants, guilty participants, prone just like they were to plot, scheme, betray, deny, and ultimately hand him over to be crucified. When you read these verses in Mark 15, and then make the association with the we in Isaiah 53, you realize what one Scottish hymn writer wrote. "'Twas I that said the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that den of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan. Yet still my voice it seems to be, as if I mocked alone." And if you think, no, not, not me, just pause and look at your life at all the times and all the ways you have turned from God to yourself in your ways. We reject God's revelation and specifically in Jesus, we reject his appearance his approach, his claims of authority on our lives, his radical views of money and possessions and power and prayer and pride in a world where we are confident in and consumed with ourselves, if left to ourselves, a Jewish rabbi in a nondescript part of the world does not merit a second thought from us. Especially as he's being beaten and mocked and spit upon. We will reject the one God has revealed. That then brings us to the third set of three verses in Isaiah 53, which is the middle. This is the heart of this prophecy. And we read in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Third truth about this servant he will be slaughtered so that we can be saved. Amen. And slaughtered is the right word. Just look at this language in Isaiah 53. The servant will bear griefs, carry sorrows, be esteemed as stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He will be pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. And why will he do all these things? For our griefs, to carry our sorrows. He'll do this 
for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our peace, for our healing. We're the guilty ones here. We all like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned. Every single one of us. You, me, all of us. It looks different in all of our lives. But we've all turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He will be slaughtered so that we can be saved from all of our iniquities. And just think about how Mark so powerfully portrays this picture in Mark 15. Through a man named Barabbas, a rebel in prison who had committed murder in an insurrection. This was a guilty criminal. And I can't help but to imagine this scene from his shoes. We don't know the details, but I just... Can't help but a picture of what was certainly possible. Imagine Barabbas sitting in a jail cell, knowing something's going on out there, hearing the crowds as he's waiting for his execution, knowing he's condemned to die for murder. And all of a sudden, he hears the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas realizes, all right, my time has come. And moments later, he hears soldiers walking toward his cell. Barabbas knows this is it. Trembling, he rises from the floor, ready for them to take him to his death. Yet when they open his cell door in a scene he never could have comprehended or fathomed, they start unlocking the chains around his wrists. Confused, he looks at them. And they look at him and say, you're free to go. And Barabbas says, free? They say, yeah, you're free. Barabbas says, but the crowds, they're yelling for my crucifixion. And they tell him the news that he never could have imagined. They're crucifying a man named Jesus instead of you. You're free. Go. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. And it is the greatest news in the world beyond what any of us could imagine. Picture the scene. You and I are guilty criminals. Not against a Roman ruler or government, but against the God of the universe. We've transgressed the law of God. We've rebelled against the authority of God. And we deserve infinite, eternal judgment from God. And the greatest news in all the world is that a man named Jesus has died instead of you and me. That Jesus has paid the price for the sins of all who trust in him so that you can be forgiven and free. Amen. So picture all these images of physical pain and suffering in Jesus in Mark 15. They're pictures of the price and the penalty of sin. 
And Jesus has taken sin and the judgment due sin upon himself in our place. Listen really closely, closely to me here. Like, please don't miss this. We are not saved from our sin simply because Jesus was falsely accused and tried and sentenced to death. We're not saved from all our sin because some Roman persecutors thrust nails into his hands and his feet and hung him on a cross. That's not why we're saved. Do you really think that the false judgment of men heaped on Jesus would pay the debt of all your sin? Do you think simply nailing him to a tree would pay the debt of every iniquity in your life? Do you think a crown of thorns and whips and nails are powerful enough to save us? No. Picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before this, praying to the point of sweating blood. Why? Is it because he was afraid of crucifixion? We've talked recently about martyrs who've gone to their deaths singing. Did they have more courage than Jesus? One man in India was being skinned alive. He says to his tormentor, take off my outer garment. Today I put on a new garment of righteousness. Christopher Love is heading to the gallows to lose his head. He sees his wife in the audience. She looks at him and says, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head, Jesus. And he goes to the gallows singing with his wife applauding. Did they have more courage than Jesus himself? Absolutely not. Jesus is not sweating blood because he is a coward about to face Roman soldiers. He's sweating blood because he's a savior about to endure divine judgment. Unlike no one else ever has or ever could. When Jesus went to the cross, listen to his language. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup? This cup... Jeremiah, Isaiah, both talk about a cup filled with the wine of God's judgment, do sin. Revelation chapter 14 talks about the cup filled with the wine of God's judgment, do sin, for all those who have not trusted in Jesus. This cup represents the judgment we deserve that he was choosing to take upon himself. One preacher described it, it's as if you and I were standing about 100 yards away from a dam, 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide, filled to the brim with water. In an instant, that dam was breached and that water came rushing like a torrent toward us. And right before it totally overtook us, the ground in front of your feet opened up and swallowed every drop. So in the same way, in a much greater way, Jesus took the full judgment, do your sin, my sin, drank down every drop, turned that cup over and cried out, it is finished. was slaughtered so we could be saved. Jesus died instead of you. Which leads right into the next part of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, 
and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Fourth promise about Jesus. He will do all of this. He will suffer and die in sinless silence. Isn't it interesting how this prophecy, this promise, deliberately emphasizes how this servant will be silent. He opened not his mouth. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. Again, it says it. He opened not his mouth. And so we get to Mark 15. And this entire scene, Jesus only speaks one sentence in verse 2. It's actually only two words in the Greek. Pilate is almost begging him. Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? To defend himself. Mark tells us in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer in a way that amazed Pilate. Matthew chapter 26 outright says, Jesus remained silent. Luke 23, 9 tells us that Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus did not answer him a word. And Jesus said nothing when the soldiers mocked him and beat him and spit in his face. And it wasn't just silence. It was sinless silence. Despite false accusations, a sham trial, betrayal by one of his disciples, denial by another, abandonment by all the others, now a brutal beating, Jesus never once sinned. Sinless silence. Even Pilate remarks about Jesus' innocence. What evil has he done? As if Pilate was just trying to follow the script of Isaiah chapter 53. And then, now this is obviously beyond Mark 15, but just to mention it, in light of Isaiah 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. After Jesus died on the cross, he obviously needed to be buried. And Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 tells us, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in this rich man's own tomb. It's not astounding. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before all of this happened. Which then leads us into the last three verses in Isaiah 53. And they are marvelous. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, these last verses are awesome because they describe the, I'll hone in on this word, satisfaction 
that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's the last promise about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Many will be satisfied in his sacrifice. And really this points to the actual crucifixion of Jesus, which we'll look at next week in Mark 15. But maybe just I'll preview what's to come and explain what I mean by being satisfied, many being satisfied in his sacrifice in a few different ways. So think about satisfaction in God the Father. God the Father is satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice. Did you notice Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us twice it was the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. He, who's he? The will of the Lord. He has put him to grief. This prophecy is a reminder that what we're reading in Mark 15 is not ultimately a human plot. It's a divine strategy. Who ultimately orchestrated and ordained the death of Jesus? Ultimately, God the Father on high did. It's not Jews and Romans doing this and God the Father wondering, what's happening? Can't stop this. No, no, it's God the Father who is ultimately responsible for the death of God the Son. This is not a historical accident. This is a heavenly appointment. The Father's will was to crush the Son. How can that be? And this goes back to where we started. God's justice and God's mercy. God is infinitely, perfectly just, and in his perfect justice, he judges sin and sinners. And God is infinitely, perfectly merciful. God is patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and mercy towards sin, sinners. So how can God show mercy to the guilty and still be just? God cannot just say, well, I just love sinners. So it's no big deal that they have rebelled against me. I'll just look over that. This is why John Stott said, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. Because he cannot be God and pretend sin is no big deal. The church father Anselm said, if anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us like we forgive others, that person has not yet considered the seriousness of sin against God. Do we realize the greatness of the one whom we have sinned against? And do we realize that if he were to overlook sin, he would not be just. He would not be holy. He would not be God. This is the profoundest of problems. How can God judge sinners and justify sinners at the same time when they are guilty? And this, this is why it was the will of the Lord to crush his son at the cross. Because at the cross, God the Father displayed the full extent of his justice. God does not act as if sin is no big deal. God demonstrates that sin is a huge deal. You want to know how big a deal sin is? Look back at all these verbs in Isaiah 53. The son was marred, despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted by God, wounded, crushed, chastised with brutal stripes, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, sheared, and crushed by God. Not 
ultimately by men, but by God. So does God judge sin and sinners? Yes, because this was all done in our place. Jesus took what we deserved, what we were due, and what everyone will receive who does not trust in Jesus. At the cross, God demonstrated the full extent of his justice. And, 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 how glorious. At the cross, God demonstrated the full extent of his mercy. Because God did all of this in love for sinners like you and me. Does God judge sin? Yes. Look at the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. Look at the cross. God is just and merciful. And in this sense, God satisfies all of his holy attributes, his justice towards sin and his mercy towards sinners in the crucifixion of his son. The father is satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice. The son, Jesus himself, is satisfied. That's the language here in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. When his soul makes an offering for death, He shall see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He'll see all of this, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. What a language. Just look at the ironies here. This servant who was cut off from the land of the living, in verse 8, he'll see his offspring. And he will die, yet he will prolong his days. How do you prolong your days through death? Well, that's only possible when you rise from the dead and prolong your days. The will of the Lord to crush him actually prospers in his hand because through his crushing, multitudes of sinners are accounted righteous whose iniquities are born. And this is the picture. Don't miss this. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see. What does he see that satisfies him? He sees the many who will be counted righteous. Just let this soak in, Christian. Jesus, as he was crushed, saw and was satisfied. And what did he see? He saw you. Amen. Right where you're sitting, he saw me. He saw all who would trust in him, and he was satisfied in bringing about your salvation. It satisfied him, which leads to the last thing I'll show you today. The Father satisfied, the Son satisfied, and we are satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice. We, to every person in this gathering today, to every person in all of history who realizes that the we in the passage is me, to every person who realizes I, like a sheep, have gone astray from God, I deserve his judgment, and I trust that the Lord has laid on Jesus all of my iniquity to all who trust in Jesus. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Mark 15, we are counted righteous before For all who place your faith in Jesus, Savior of your sin, Lord of your life, God looks at you and me, and he does not see our sin. God sees the righteousness of his son when he looks at you. So you don't have to hold your head low in shame for sin in your past. Lift up your head. You are righteous before God through faith in Jesus. You don't have to live with 
this constant sense of guilt over what you've done or even what you're prone to do. Your guilt has been removed. He, as far as the east is from the west, he remembers your sins no more. It's a scandal. God looks at you and says, righteous. God looks at you. Your identity is no longer as a sinner. Your identity is now a son or a daughter of God. You are no longer seen as a rebel against God. You are seen as righteous, royalty before God. And then, okay, so here's where I want to make the application. Specifically, those of you walking through hard days, look at this picture. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's the picture of a king who takes the spoil that he has and he spreads it out among all those in his kingdom. And I was just, just thinking about whether in my own life or others' lives, hard days. Well, one, be encouraged. Jesus clearly knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what hard days are like. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to be broken. He, he's familiar with your sufferings. You're not alone in that. And in that picture, just he's able to sympathize with you, and not only to sympathize with you, but to provide for you. He intercedes for you, willing at any moment to provide you everything you need as you walk through hard days. He promises every morning you wake up, new mercy waiting for you. His mercy doesn't just cover your sin. His mercy comforts in suffering. Meets you in the morning as soon as you rise out of bed, before you even get up out of bed, and it walks with you every moment all day long. That's part of his mercy, not just toward sin, but toward suffering. And so here this picture of spoil. When, when the suffering servant is with you, for you. The conquering king is with you, for you. You can know hard days will not be the end of your story. That trial, that tribulation, that sorrow, that suffering will not be the end of your story. So you know what the end of your story is? Spoil. It's, it's an inheritance and a kingdom where Jesus, the suffering servant and sovereign king, will welcome you into his presence, wipe every tear from your eyes, and those things will be no more. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. Life forever with him for all who trust. All of this is only possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So, for anyone within the sound of my voice who's never put your trust in Jesus, as the suffering Savior and sovereign King of your life. See, here, God has brought you to this moment. He loves you so much. It's 700 years before Mark 15. He promised this. Mark 15, he brought it out. And this brought it about. And in this moment, he's telling you, I love you so much. I gave my son for you. What is keeping you from being declared innocent of sin, righteous before God, in the family of God, eternal life with God in his kingdom. What's keeping you from this? Don't let your pride keep you from this. Trust in him. Trust him. Do not be counted among those who, when they die, have to drink that cup of eternal judgment. I plead with you. Trust in Jesus today. And for all who have 
Be reminded in a fresh way in this moment the depth of Jesus' love for you, his pursuit of you, his promise to cover all your sin. You do not live in the shame and guilt of sin anymore. You've been made righteous. So rise up and trust in the one whose mercy not only covers all your sin, but comforts you in suffering. So you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations. I just just want to ask every single person within the sound of my voice, do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus as the Savior of your sin, the Lord of your life? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you, I implore you, I urge you, right now, in this holy moment, say to God, God, I, like sheep, have gone astray. Turn to my own ways. Today I believe that Jesus took my iniquity upon himself. And he died on the cross for my sin. And he rose from the dead. And today I put my trust in Jesus. Forgive me my sin. Free me from its power and penalty in my life to live under your loving Lordship. And you say that to God. You express that in faith to God. By faith. Not in your work, but by faith in his work on the cross for you. God declares over your life not guilty anymore. He declares forgiven and free. And God, I pray for that reality all across this room, other locations right now, people online, wherever people are listening. And God, for all of us who know this reality, we pray you'd help us to live in it. Help us to live daily overwhelmed by your love for us. To never tire of this gospel, this amazing, astounding good news that we are counted righteous before you, that we are made royalty by you, that we are in your family, and that we have confidence for all of eternity. God, help us to live with power over sin and with freedom from worry, from anxiety, from despair. God, help us to live with hope, joy, peace that's been bought for us at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. In the name of the one who made all of this possible. The suffering servant and sovereign king. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Radical with David Platt. For more resources from David Platt, we invite you to visit Radical.net.